Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, I'm going to pray for us. And then last, last night, this is the last night. Uh, so um, we'll, we'll dive into chapter 12 and do some review before that. But um, I've enjoyed it. So let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for who you are and what you've done. And we're thankful for a book like this that reminds us that you are in control. God, we pray that we would continue to surrender our lives to you. Father, that we would allow uh, no event um, or circumstance that takes place in our life uh, distract us from your goodness and faithfulness and the joy that can be had in you. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to, to truly uh, transform us through your word, through your power. And Father, we pray that tonight is just another moment for you to do that. Uh, that uh, we would all just allow the Spirit to move in our lives, that you would speak through me, uh, that you would speak through everyone, Father, as we just join together to really take part in, um, in hearing from you. And God, we pray that you would do what, what we could, never could. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would just um, convict and challenge and encourage and counsel and help. Father, we know that you are capable of all those things, God, and we just pray that you continue to, to meet us here. Lord, we love you, and it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this is last night. Um, Sad to to end our time together, but it's good. Summer's coming, uh, and it'll be fun to be able to, you know, cook out and do all the other things we can do, go on vacation, so it'll be good. Well, first thing I want to do tonight is simply this. Uh, Go through a quick review of all the chapters. And it will be quick. I'm not going to go into depth in all the chapters. Uh, But just to remind us where we've been. So, and then we'll we'll dive into chapter 12. Then after that, I want to do do some some question and answer. And even just really um, just do some questions about what it is that has become meaningful uh, for this class for you and um, hopefully some things that stick out uh, in terms of what Daniel's been talking about that we can kind of begin to apply. So first things first, chapter 1. Chapter 1, right? Daniel is taken into captivity with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're all given new names. And the reason that they're taken into captivity is because they are the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. They are the nobles. And so, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in bringing the exiles into Israel, brings Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they go into exile. They do so because they are being punished. Israel is being punished. Israel has set up other, other gods. They've worshipped them. Uh, they have, in, in light of that worship, uh, they have done basically just despicable things. Um, and ultimately, God is now using a pagan nation to bring justice on the people that he, that really he chose to be uh, an extension, an outreach to the world. Um, and so he begins to, to use Babylon for this purpose. Uh, the Babylonian nation, headed up by Nebuchadnezzar, they bring him in. And what happens to Daniel? They try to make them eat these certain foods. Daniel and his friends say, we're not going to do that. And uh, basically, Arioch, the commander, is like, well, you have to do it. And uh, actually, it wasn't Arioch at this point. It was another eunuch at the time. And, uh, and basically what happens is the king, or Daniel says, if you can just convince the king that we can do this for 10 days, you know, we will we'll go through our own diet. It'll be great. It'll work out. 
and uh, he says, "Okay, I'll let you. I'll let you do this thing." So they eat what they want to eat uh, for these ten days, and they come out on the other side of it looking better than ever. And so again, we see this as miraculous because they were eating vegetables um, and fruits, but they were actually gaining weight. Right? They weren't just getting thinner and looking. Uh, nice and cut, right, and lean, they were actually looking plump and wealthy and, and healthy uh, because that's what people considered to be healthy back in that time. And so it really was a, a miracle. This is the first miracle that God does uh, within this. And we begin to see how God's faithfulness, providence, is actually, His hand is reaching down into the people of Israel even at a time where they are still receiving punishment. Uh, even still, He is faithful to them. So uh, Daniel, in light of this, gains a lot of favor. It says that him and his friends have this understanding, this wisdom that they gain. And this is what will equip them for the rest of our story. So when we get to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and nobody can interpret it. But he he doesn't just ask that somebody interpret it. He asks that they communicate it from the ground up. He won't even tell them what what it is. They have to tell him what it is. And then they have to tell him what it means. Nobody can do it except for Daniel. And if you remember, the reason Daniel can do this is not simply because he is so wise and understanding, but because he prays for wisdom, and that wisdom is given to him by God. And what Daniel is communicating is that God is truly the wise, uh, the wise counsel that we, are, that we should be after. That no one has this in and of themselves. It is only this God that we can come before that begins to give us revelation of truth and reality in life. And Daniel tells him the dream, he explains the dream, and it is of a statue, right? And that statue is split up into four different parts. Uh, The gold, the silver, the the, uh, bronze, and then the clay and the iron mixed together. And what we come to see is that these are kingdoms. Now, we've identified those kingdoms, if you remember, as the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. And, uh, And ultimately what happens is those are hit by a stone, And that stone becomes a mountain, and this is the very power of God at work. And that mountain continues to expand and expand and eclipse every kingdom that stood opposed to it. Because God's kingdom is the most powerful, right? That's chapter 2. Chapter 3 comes... And we get into chapter 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden image. Now, this image could very well have been the statue that he envisioned in his dream. We're not sure. Um, It kind of describes it as at least a very um, high statue or tall statue, but also a very thin one. Um, There are some people who think it has a very grotesque shape to it. We don't know, but we know it's gold. And ultimately what uh, Nebuchadnezzar says is, you have to bow down to this, and if you don't, you will be killed. And there are three people that are mentioned in the story that don't do that. And we know them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These people don't do it. Nebuchadnezzar's not happy about that. But especially they're told on, that's an important fact, they're told on by Nebuchadnezzar's other advisors. And so Nebuchadnezzar throws them into a furnace. And he heats it seven times hotter. Seven times, that seven, that number of completion that we've kind of talked about because Daniel uses these numbers in such vivid and symbolic ways to communicate something more than just uh, uh, their, their, their literalness, but actually something greater than it. He expands upon it. This is a complete uh, judgment that's being brought upon them by Nebuchadnezzar, and yet they do not face it. God saves them. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in the furnace and he sees one that is like a son of the gods standing there. And he doesn't understand why. He brings them out and they are completely unscathed. 
that, that they have not been hurt, uh, that their clothes aren't even singed in any way. The hand of God, again, reaches down and proves His faithfulness. And they set it up so well. When talking to Nebuchadnezzar about it, what do they say? God can save us from this. But even if He doesn't, He is faithful. Because they're first identifying the fact that, one, they actually deserve judgment. That's why they're here in the first place. But secondly, that God has the power to do whatever God wants to. And so when God saves them, He shows them His faithfulness. He vindicates them. And ultimately, He's bringing them into a life, uh, that, uh, into a purpose that He's creating uh, so that He can begin to establish life. That is chapter 3. So chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar um, really at this point is beginning to understand who this God is. He's had so many encounters with him that um, I believe he does at least to some level come to a knowledge of saving faith through chapter 4. At least that's what it seems to indicate. Because he sends out a decree to all of Babylon uh, that says, You have to know about this God. Let me tell you, I had this dream and it was amazing. And Daniel told me what this dream was. It was a tree. You guys remember the tree? It was giant. It provided life to everyone. Everyone came to gather underneath its buffs. I fed everyone, right? And then what would happen is ultimately uh, that tree was lopped down. What did this mean? What could this mean? Uh, Daniel tells him, this is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the tree. That your kingdom has become mighty and glorious and powerful. But the problem is that you think it is as a result of your own abilities instead of the, the providence and the sovereignty of God and His willingness to, to, to allow you to, to provide and to fill this space. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I understand. And yet it doesn't stop him from ultimately going on top of his roof, looking at his kingdom and trying to glorify himself for what he believes he has built. And it's a reminder for us that God is in control, that He is sovereign, and that we have nothing that is ours. God gives us these things. And we get to use them for His glory, or we get to act like it's for ours. Uh, but ultimately, if we act like it's for ours, we will fall. Pride will lead to a fall. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar's mind is turned into one that is like an animal. And he goes and he lives in uh, the wilderness for what he says is seven times, right? And again, we don't know exactly what that means. But I think the seven is, again, a number that we're seeing all throughout the book of Daniel. This idea of completion. When we get into chapter 5, it's when Belshazzar comes to power. Now, if you remember, there's a little bit of a gap between Nebuchadnezzar's reign and Belshazzar's. But we do know this. History has confirmed that Belshazzar is a king of sorts that ruled with Nabonidus. And Belshazzar uh, began to throw this great feast. And he did so, but one of the things he did was he took the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple when he ransacked Jerusalem. He brought them out to be used in this party. And everybody feasted, and they drank, and they got drunk, and they did some crazy things. At least that's what it seems like the text is implying. And ultimately, at this feast, what happens is eventually a hand appears, and it writes a message on the wall. You guys are seeing all these miraculous things that are happening, right? The food, the, the ability to say what the dream was and, and uh, what, the meaning of it, right? When we see people saved from the fire, when we see a man being turned into a mind like an animal, when we see a hand writing on the wall, we are seeing the power of God. And what he says to Belshazzar is, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting because you thought you were more than you were. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, who actually accomplished great things. Uh, he did so many more great things than you. And yet you still think you're better than him. And God humbles Belshazzar. On that very night, he would die and the kingdom would go to the Medes and the Persians. And in that moment of the Medes and the Persians uh, taking over, 
new kings would arise. A new kingdom would arise. The thing that Daniel had prophesied back in chapter 2. And so, uh, what we see is the first king, Darius. Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede comes in in chapter 6. And Daniel has developed a relationship with Darius that ultimately... uh, it's, it's a close one because when Daniel is indicted on his uh, crimes of praying to his God during this time period that ultimately the advisors of Darius set so that they can entrap Daniel, Darius is, is distraught. This is his friend. This is his advisor. This is the president of the satraps. And yet, now he has to put him in the lion's den. And so he does. He goes into the lion's den, and what happens? He survives. And we see the power of God at work again. And then when they pull him out, Belshazzar, or Darius, I almost said all three kings at that point, Darius throws Daniel into the pit, or not Daniel, he throws his advisors into the pit, and the lions immediately pounce upon them. It says before they even hit the ground, their bodies were crushed. Because it was showing one thing. It wasn't as if the lions were fed. They were hungry. But God kept them off for, this, for the moment when he could have judgment and justice come upon those who were standing against his faithful. And so, uh, chapter 6 wraps up with Darius even giving praise to this God. So, chapter 7 comes in, and uh, things start to get a little funky. Visions start to happen. Daniel sees some things, and he sees four beasts coming out of the sea. The first one is a lion, and it has wings, but it, it looks, it, it looks as, uh, he says, it describes it as, as it's been given the heart of a man. It's because we see, one, a lion representing that Babylonian empire often throughout their imagery, but also that Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be, even though he became like an animal, he actually became back like a man. And then we see the bear with three ribs in its mouth, and we remember that this is the Medo-Persian empire, and the ribs are those territories that they overcame. Next is the leopard. The leopard has four heads. And we saw this as the Greek empire that was split up into four different empires, kingdoms, not empires, kingdoms. And ultimately that is expounded upon later in chapter 11. We'll get there. And the last beast that rose out of the sea was that one that couldn't even be described. It was like nothing on this earth. But here's what we know about it. It had ten horns until one came up and replaced three of them. And it was a haughty horn. It was uh, boastful. And it began to shout these things about itself and against God. And what we came to identify is this, these are the very characteristics of not necessarily the Antichrist, but certainly a Antichrist. Someone who sets themselves up against God. But someone else comes into the picture in this chapter, the Ancient of Days. And he takes his seat on his throne and he begins to judge these parties. Now, if you remember, these kingdoms are not just representative of of Babylon, of the Medo-Persian Empire, of Greek and Rome. They're actually, they really are representative of human beings and the kingdoms that we begin to, to create, reminding us that as humans, we have become less than what we truly are. We've become beasts, animals that have become distorted, disfigured by sin. And yet this Ancient of Days, when he finally sits down to judge all of these kingdoms that have set themselves up against God, another enters the picture and one like a son of man. One that looks like what we should have looked like. One that was a new Adam in the person of Jesus. And Jesus identifies himself as this character throughout the New Testament, but especially in Mark 13 when we talked about that on Sunday. He is the Son of Man who would sit down next to the Ancient of Days and accept the worship and the glory that was given to him to establish a new kingdom, a godly kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom. 
And this would be the kingdom that would dash all the others and become that giant mountain that expanded across the entire world. This is the kingdom that is inviting us into it by the presence of the Holy Spirit so that as we become a temple, not something that's a building, but actually a living, breathing temple that houses the presence of God where heaven and earth meet, this is the place where our God will reign. And it will eclipse the entire world. In chapter uh, 8, when we go on, a goat and a ram show up. This ram has two horns. One is slightly taller than the other. And it also mentions that it came up a little bit later. And we see that as the Persian, and the other one is the, as the Median. And that's mostly because Daniel told us. He finally told us who some of these people were. Medo-Persian. And then the goat has one horn, and this is the Greek Empire. And we see that as Alexander the Great. That horn is broken, and four more come up. Those are these other four empires that have been established in the Greek Empire, or the kingdoms. Until one comes up, who becomes powerful force? by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphany. This is where this, this uh, chapter 8 ultimately begins to end. When this goat tramples on uh, the ram and ultimately establishes its reign and begins to uh, prophesy of what some things are going to happen, the, the evening sacrifices that will stop for what it says is 2300 evenings. And we see this as a direct fulfillment of what Antiochus would do in his reign between 167 um, and 164, when those, when those evening sacrifices began to stop. Um, in chapter 9, we see Daniel go to prayer. He prays to God for repentance, deliverance, that God would remember him. And this is the first time in the book that he uses the name Yahweh, the covenant name, the personal name of God that, he, that God has shared with his people to use. He uses this name and he prays to God for deliverance, for rescue, for forgiveness, that God may be glorified and that ultimately by restoring his people, it would actually bring glory to, to God himself. And God interrupts Daniel's prayer uh, through his messenger, Gabriel. Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says, you have been heard because of your humility, because of your repentance, because of your willingness to identify your sin. And this is a glorious thing for us, is that God, uh, God understands that we're sinful and he doesn't expect us to be perfect for us to be in his presence, but he does expect us to be humble. And that the way that God hears us most clearly is when we are most willing to be vulnerable, when we are most willing to give our lives, to open up our lives, to, say, to show God how, how broken we are and finally say, God, fix me. That's what Daniel does. And what God does is he gives Daniel a vision of 70 weeks, just like the 70 years that had to pass between Jeremiah's prediction uh, and the nation of Israel be being able to go back and build their temple and their city. Now 70 weeks would pass for the ultimate anointed one to come in, establish a new covenant and ultimately a new kingdom that would cover all sins, that would make up for, for all evil, for all sickness, and ultimately would establish a time where a new prince reigned. A new prince reigned. In chapter 10, uh, Daniel is fasting and praying again. But this time, it takes God a little while to finally answer him. In day 24, after this fasting and prayer, God finally sends a messenger, or maybe God sent him earlier, but ultimately what we begin to see is this messenger was held back. And we don't know why necessarily, outside of the fact that he says that he was in some sort of battle with the prince of Persia. Regardless, what we begin to see is the veil pulled back. 
we are seeing what's happening in the spiritual realm that regardless of what we are seeing, there's a battle going on and God's winning it. And God will always win it. And God uses us to be a part of it. God uses people to be a part of His plan. He's not simply a God who wants to snap His fingers. He wants to see time expand and unravel in a historical way that brings beauty. And so he includes us. He invites us to be a part of it. And so what we begin to see in chapter 10 is the angel come to Daniel and say, I've been trying to get to you. Now here I am. And and what Daniel sees is a vision of what I believe to be Christ. He sees this, this vision of this amazingly glorious being that is described as well in Revelation 1. He's, he's got this, this blazing, these blazing eyes and this white hair and this gold sash. And it's just an amazing image of what seems to be a manifestation of Jesus. And ultimately, he falls down almost dead. He has no strength because of the power of this being, of the, the reverence, the holiness, the, the amazing awesomeness of what he is witnessing. And he has to be touched three times simply so that he can bear the words of the angel. Finally, the angel speaks, and this is when we get to chapter 11. In chapter 11, the angel begins to unravel this plan that will unfold between, uh, first, the, the four kings that will arise in Persia, which we believe ends with Xerxes as the, the major king, and then it begins into Alexander the Great, who would take over. And then, from Alexander the Great, we have the four kingdoms, and then these kingdoms specifically, it goes, dials into the king of the south and the king of the north. The king of the north would be the Seleucid kingdom. The king of the south would be the Ptolemaic kingdom. These kingdoms would be the ones that would be out at war constantly, going back and forth as new kings came into power until finally Antiochus IV Epiphany did. And when he did, he would make a covenant with people of Israel who were willing to forsake their covenant with God, who were willing to be unfaithful, who were willing to adopt the culture, the heritage, the, the, the gods of the Greek culture, um, and, and in doing so, ultimately abandoned God. And Antiochus makes an agreement with them. Ultimately, Antiochus sends a general down to Jerusalem. And that general basically says, if you circumcise your kids, if you uh, sacrifice in the temple, if you do any of these things, you will be killed. But here's what you will do. You're going to sacrifice this pig on the altar. And what happens when somebody asks Judas the Maccabees to? Well, actually, it's his father at the time, Matthias. But he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm absolutely not going to do that. Somebody else comes, they run, and they do it. And Matthias immediately just kills both the general and the person who sacrificed the pig. And it starts a revolt within the Jewish, uh, within the Jewish people of the, a little faction of those who wanted to be faithful to the covenant that God had established with them. And so they flee to the mountains. And in doing so, they start this revolt that would last a total of, basic, well, really about three to four or five years until they finally had made an alliance with Rome. They finally made an alliance with Rome that helped them to establish themselves as an independent nation, even though they were one that still answered to Rome. And ultimately, that would carry them over into the New Testament. And so that's actually part of how the Herodian dynasty begins to take place when you hear about the Herods. It actually first starts out with the Hasmoneans. We didn't get into this because ultimately we're not talking about the New Testament. But this is kind of interesting that you guys might want to know. Is that the Hasmonean dynasty is a specific um, outworking of this independent nation of Israel. And ultimately, what would happen throughout time is the Herodian dynasty would, be, would come up in its place and uh, specifically be established by Rome. And that would be the one, the Herodian dynasty would be the one that we would see going through um, the New Testament. And out of the Hasmonean dynasty is actually where we get the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
And those are people, political and religious parties, that ultimately are, are a, very, a huge part of creating what people know uh, religiously about what is right to believe in, what is right doctrine, what is right practice. And so it's why we have such, even when Jesus is arguing with these different factions, um, he talks to the Sadducees and they ask him about the resurrection and he basically says, you guys don't even believe in the resurrection. And then there are times when he's talking to the Pharisees and they get mad because his disciples don't wash their hands. And he says, you guys are adding to the book. You guys are adding to the rules. This isn't how it's supposed to work. So this is all coming out of this movement. This is all coming out of that movement. Um, so basically, as we get to Antiochus, the, the, the revolt happens and they establish the uh, Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. That is what is established ultimately at the end of this when they are able to rededicate the temple and have those evening sacrifices, have the morning sacrifices and begin temple worship again. But when we get to verse 36 of chapter 11, that is when there is a shift from Antiochus to a new king. And we know this for a couple reasons. One is because we've already shifted kings so many times throughout this narrative. Um, But also, it's the first time that it hasn't been referred to as the king of the south or the king of the north. simply says a new king comes in. And this new king is who we believe to be the Antichrist or a Antichrist. Somebody who sets themselves up against God and begins this, again, this boastful attitude towards him. And this is the same paradigm that have been set up for us this entire book with Nebuchadnezzar, with Belshazzar, um, with um, even the little horn in chapter 7 and the little horn in chapter 8. So what we're beginning to see are these constant repetitions of this idea that when people set themselves up against God, God will bring them down. They will not stand for long. And that's what we see. That is what we are entering into. Because when we get to the end of chapter 11, it, it approaches this point where the Antichrist has set himself up between, um, basically it says, the, the palatial aspects of, of Israel, between the Mediterranean Sea and, um, oh shoot, I don't know. I can't remember the other thing. But essentially, he sets himself up in Israel. I uh, just got him on. The whole, what did you say? The Holy Mount. There you go, yeah. The Holy Mount and the Mediterranean Sea. And he sets himself up between these things, and it's basically saying, I'm occupying the Holy Land. I'm occupying the place that God had given to his people. And when he does this, God brings him to an end. It's, I mean, it doesn't even show any warfare. It doesn't show anything. It just simply says that God brings him to an end. And that is how God does things. He doesn't need to have this, draw, this long, drawn-out thing. He likes to have us be a part of it. But at the end of the day, when, the, when history finally reaches its final climax and we are up against an enemy of God, God will ultimately bring it to pass that this person will be destroyed by the hand of God. When we get to chapter 12, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. Um, before we do that, any questions about any of those last, those last chapters? All right, we'll go into chapter 12, and uh, we'll make it happen. And obviously, we'll have more times for questions as we go, too. So chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time, at that time. So remember, this is the time that's talking about um, ultimately when, when the end has been brought on this Antichrist. Okay? At that time shall arise Michael, which if you remember is an archangel. That's what Jude describes him as. Um, it's, it describes him here as a great prince. Um, And we believe this to be the angel that specifically God has put over the nation of Israel to be a protector for them, to be an aid and a helper for them. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, 
such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, at the time of trouble, when it was supposed to be at its worst, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So at this time, when is everything supposed to just get terrible, all of a sudden it won't. The people will be delivered. So um, a time of trouble, again, it's, it's that, it's, regardless of the time of trouble, ultimately it's deliverance that they're looking for. It's deliverance that they're going to, to receive. And, they, and part of that is based on the fact that their names are written in the book of life. <coughs> or I should say written in the book. It doesn't, necessarily say, it doesn't necessarily say book of life, but that's kind of what it's alluding to. Well, we understand it to be. There are several times when the book of life uh, or the book that has people's names inscribed on it who are part of the, the people of God are talked about. <clears throat> and ultimately, uh, within this uh, is, is this idea that, that our names are written. When we, when we have salvation, our names are, are written in this book to, to validate the fact that we are um, where we, we belong when God finally comes. And so it's just a continual reminder of the fact that you want this name in this book. And you want your name in this book. And ultimately, God is the person who establishes this. God is the one who writes your name. In uh, verse 2, he goes on. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So this is kind of one of the more exciting parts about this book, because this is one of the most, if not the most, explicitly stated um, uh, scripture passages that we have about eternity, about eternal life, about the afterlife. And there are allusions to it all throughout the Old Testament, uh, but this one, this one is very, very direct. And, uh, and most people would agree, this is probably as explicit as it will get in the Old Testament. So, uh, let's talk about it a little bit. So, there are two different views that people have of the afterlife um, and what that will mean. Well, I shouldn't say two. There's probably like lots of them, but probably two main ones about what it means to be in eternal life. And the first one is this. It's called soul sleep. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of soul sleep. Have you heard of that before? Okay, so soul sleep is actually a really interesting concept. And um, basically the idea is this, that when you die, you, your body is simply like sleeping. Not sleeping as if like you're going to wake up, you know, the next morning. But sleeping as if like you are basically in an unconscious state. Uh, your mind isn't working. Time is passing, elapsing, and you don't know how much. So there's this idea that essentially that's what's happening when we die. Now, I want to back up and explain this. Why would people believe this? Um, what, because doesn't, it, doesn't the Bible say that we are in the presence of God right after we die if we are united with Him? Yes, it does say that. So let me explain how this could work. How many of you guys have had surgery? Okay, so have I. I've had, like, I think two or three. I've had a couple surgeries. And, uh, and two of them specifically, I went under for. They gave me anesthesia. Now, I remember going under, and I remember waking up. I do not remember the amount of time that passed in between them, right? And that is because when you're in a state like that, time ceases to become a factor. It's not a variable anymore. And so the idea is when you die and you wake up, you are in eternity, and you wake up immediately. 
So think of it like this. When you go in for surgery and you come back out and you don't know how much time has passed, but you know this, you were asleep and then you were awake. You simply just woke up. And this is the same idea as soul sleep, is that ultimately your body dies, but then immediately all you know is that you're awake, resurrected again. That the time doesn't matter anymore because it simply has elapsed. You've simply woken up, resurrected, and this is what it means, partially. Here's some implications. It means that even if I die before any of you, I will still see you all when I wake up immediately. Does that make sense? Because even though I have resurrected from the dead, even though I have woken up, so have all of you. The reason I'm waking up is because we've all been resurrected. And that, this is the idea of essentially soul sleep. It's this idea that our, our bodies, uh, we die and then we immediately wake up and we are in eternity. That even though several thousands of years have maybe have passed, it doesn't matter. We simply are in eternity and we are with the people that we love and that was ultimately a part of the community of God. Um, so this is, this is um, part of an explanation of how this resurrection might take place. And the reason some people think that this is um, possible is if you remember, like, I believe it's, it's the story of, um, of Samuel, who, um, who's, I think Samuel's the one brought back from the dead, if you remember that. And he's like, well, why'd you wake me up from sleep? Right? And so we kind of think that if he, if he was in heaven, uh, that p- perhaps that he wouldn't act like that. He'd be like, why'd you take me away from heaven? You know, or something like that. Now, he very well could have been. We don't really know. I mean, this is a very small scene and, you know, we're kind of speculating at this point. And I will just say this, all of this is at some level of speculation, but it's just kind of interesting, you know, it's interesting to talk about. So um, we have that. And even like when Lazarus or Jairus's daughter are raised from the dead, it doesn't seem that they're like, why'd you bring me back here? You know? It seems like they rise from the dead, and then they're up, and they're, they're, doing, they're doing well. They're doing good. And so it, it could be that maybe their souls didn't go there yet, or, uh, or their spirits, if it's, if it's like that. It could be, again, like this soul sleep thing where actually their souls were resting. They were in a state of rest, and then they were, awoke, they were uh, basically uh, they got woken up by, by somebody. You know. So this is kind of the idea. Pretty interesting, right? So um, that is soul sleep. That's soul sleep. So that is a pretty minority view, but it is one, and I think it's pretty interesting. The other one is the one you've probably heard of mostly, which is that when we die, our bodies are dead, but our spirits are alive, and our spirits go to be with the Father. And honestly, this one has the most biblical text to back it up. Um, This one's probably the right view. (laughs) Uh, And so even Paul talks about this in Corinthians, which is this idea that um, when, our, when we lose our bodies, our spirits go to be in the presence of God. Um, let me see if I wrote it down where it was. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 5.8 um, is a place where, where Paul talks about that. Uh, we also see this is a parable, but usually parables are based off of some sort of reality. But Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus, if you guys remember that story, uh, they both die. And the rich man's like, dude, Jesus, can you go get... Uh, the, the, the poor beggar to come uh, just help me out a little bit. He's like, dude, seriously, he, he literally sat at your gate your entire life and you never helped him and now you're still trying to make him serve you even in the afterlife. Um, and notice too that the rich man is not given a name but Lazarus is. Now, Lazarus is the one that's in heaven and Lazarus doesn't even know that the rich man is there. He's, he's not down there. And what the rich man says is, well, can you just go tell my brothers so that they don't end up like this? And he says, they have everything they need. They have the law and the prophets. 
And I always think this is always the text I go back to uh, when, when people talk about, well, why doesn't God make himself more known? You know, why doesn't God show himself more so that we would believe? Well, actually, God has. That's what Romans says, is that he has made himself very plainly know, uh, known, that it's actually our sinfulness that continues to reject it no matter what. And the point of this parable, in some ways, is to say that they have, God has given us everything we could possibly need to have belief in him. And our rejection of him is not because he hasn't made himself known, but simply because we've closed our eyes. And it's, it's our, in our willingness to actually begin to open them that we can have a belief in God that is real and, and ultimately brings us justification through our faith. Um, and so, uh, again, but that shows kind of the spiritual realm that there's, um, you know, it calls it Abraham's bosom, but there's this the spiritual realm that exists and that there's this divide, that, this chasm that nobody can cross. Uh, there, there's a distinction that's being made, being made there. Um, this spiritual realm is one that is, uh, is ultimately... Uh, makes sense even when you think about Jesus talking to the thief on the cross and Jesus saying, well, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, how could he be with me today in paradise if he was really waking up, you know, immediately to that like thousands and thousands of years later? So um, so these are some different ideas. I think the spiritual realm one probably has the most, um, most validity to it is that ultimately that we have a spirit that gives us a conscious mind that gives us the ability to think, to reason. Uh, that is a part of what makes up our identity of who we are. And ultimately, when we are resurrected, we are simply reunited with our earthly bodies. Uh, but new bodies. Not just our old bodies, but new bodies. Um, and so, what that actually looks like, we're not sure. Um, the only person who maybe can compare to this idea is Jesus, right? If you guys remember, when he was resurrected from the dead, people didn't really recognize him. Um, and and it's kind of an interesting idea of like why didn't they recognize Jesus? And a lot of it, even when he enlightens their eyes, is actually when they do uh, recognize him or when he explains the scriptures to them. But one thing that happens as well that I, I just recently heard, I thought was really fascinating, um, and I never thought of it before, but I think it's actually really beautiful. I don't know if it's true, but it's really beautiful, is that even in his new earthly body, he still had the scars, he still had the, the places where it was a reminder of what he had paid, the price he had paid. And the, the question is, well, why? You know, why could they not recognize him? But how did he still have these scars? And what I was listening to, um, they, they said that a popular theory, which I, I guess it's, it can't be that popular because I never heard of it before. But it was the, this idea that actually these wounds that we, that we bore in love, we actually keep into, into eternity. Because they actually become marks of glory and goodness. And I don't know if that's true, but man, that is a beautiful idea. So, um, again, it's just really fascinating. The, the eternity in general is something that we don't know a lot about, honestly. Because the Bible is really not concerned with explaining it very much. They're much more concerned with you um, enjoying the Creator rather than anticipating this new place of blessing. Uh, the blessing is the Creator. And heaven is defined by goodness and grace, and there's no more sickness or sadness or mourning or pain. Revelation 21 says that. But ultimately, the greatest blessing in eternity is not that we are free from suffering, but simply that we are free to be with God again. That we're back in that garden all over again. Uh, and that is the hope that we begin to, to look forward to. And so, um, yeah, just a beautiful picture of, of that. Um, in verse, well, yeah, I'll talk about this first. So, a couple things, even with, etern- with eternity, one of the things that this mentions, and I think that's really important, especially for our day and age, is that more and more people are, co- are coming to this idea that God will not judge. 
uh, this idea that ultimately everybody's going to go to eternity. And I will say, I think this is a text we can turn to and say, this is not what this says. Uh, this is pretty clear. If you look uh, in verse 4, I believe, or 3, 3. It says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. Oh, I'm sorry, it's verse 2. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There is a juxtaposition between who the people of God are and who the people of God aren't. And that has made a lot of people in our culture uncomfortable. But here's the reality. If we do not believe in a God of justice, then we really don't believe in a God at all. And I've heard Tim Keller say it like this. God will not wink at injustice. God will not just brush it off and say, oh, that's okay, maybe next time. Because there are terrible things that happen within this life that ultimately um, God has to put right. God would not be a good God if he did not bring justice. The problem is that this has become an unpopular view not because people don't want justice, they do. You know, you start talking about sex trafficking and, and you know, the, the, the event in uh, Sri Lanka that just happened, you know. And, and you think of the Holocaust, things like this. And it burns inside of us. We all desire justice. The problem is that none of us think we deserve it. And the issue then is that becomes imposed upon God. Well, God can't punish people for little things like this and that. But yes, this is the holy God. Now, the difference is that God desperately wants you to be covered by the blood of His Son, Jesus. But if you reject that too, if you reject the, the, the Savior of the world that has died on your behalf, that has paid the debt that you owed, how can you possibly believe that you would even want to live with this God? You've rejected the very revelation of all that He is, and, and you would probably be... C.S. Lewis kind of paints this picture. You'd probably be pretty unhappy in heaven with a God that you rejected that, that way. And, uh, and so this is a very distinct difference. In fact, I was listening to a lecture today by Ligon Duncan. I don't know if you guys know who that is or not, but he's talking about the fall. And one of the things that he said uh, today and that I never thought of before, but it was so pertinent to what we're talking about tonight, was that the first lie that was ever believed was that God would not actually administer justice. When he said to, the, to Adam and Eve, if you eat the, from this tree, you will surely die. And they said, well, we're going to do it anyway. They believed a lie about the justice of God. And they ultimately carried the burden of that lie into what we are in now. I mean, ultimately sin has become uh, a sort of disease, you know, that has ultimately infiltrated every part of our world. And that's part of what justice is, is it's bringing, it's making things right uh, of what sin has done. And there simply can't be a view of God and his goodness that excludes the idea that God will make evil things right, that God will bring, um, make, make crooked paths straight, you know, that idea. Um, so I want to stop there. Any questions that you guys can think of or comments or anything that you guys are thinking of that would be helpful for everybody? It kind of sounds to me like part of our problem is we cannot think without thinking in a time concept. Yeah, absolutely. God, there's no time. Yeah. And so whether we're asleep and then we're conscious again, 
could have been millions of years from God's perspective. And, yeah. But, and so you could apply some of that to both of those sides of the equation and fit. Mm-hmm. Because we're always thinking in, in segments of time. Well, is this going to be immediately when I die or is it going to be a thousand years? After? Right. It doesn't really matter because with God there's no time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if you guys remember, basically there's, there's no time with God. So the way that we perceive and actually exist within time, the way we conceptualize reality as a whole is simply different than how God does. God is not contained to time. Um, and actually, one of the things I've even thought about is, um, again, this is speculation, but I think it's interesting. If you don't, then just ignore me. But, um, uh, you know, I think about when I was a kid, and I felt like time, I just got bored all the time. I felt like time, it just took forever for things to happen. You know, it just, I felt like, like even just waiting to go to a friend's house, it was like, it felt like forever. But the older I get, you know, and I'm not that old, but the older I get, time just flies by. And, you know, there's some of you guys who are older than me that you're like, you understand this even better than I do. It's like, yeah, time just blazes by. I mean, if you think about looking back at your life of how, you know, long it felt then, but now how quick it goes by now, um, it's just insane. And so part of me even wonders, I speculate, that in eternity, you know, we think, wow, it's such a long time to exist. But really, existence becomes much less... Um, uh, what's the what's the term I want to use? The the idea of existing forever becomes much less um, gigantic, you know. If we if we begin to realize that actually the more we experience time, the more the less it actually feels like it's elapsed, you know. Um, so, anyways, that's my philosophical speculation for tonight. So no, I'm just kidding. I probably have more, honestly. So. Um, but yeah, that's a good that's a good point though. Yeah, the way that God experiences time is I mean he's timeless. So, yes. In the book on heaven by Randy Alcorn, he doesn't believe in soul sleep, but he thinks that it's in a state that we will know that we're going to be in heaven or hell mm. until, until it happens. Until it happens. Yeah, yeah. I, think I find that interesting. So. Yeah, so he's saying Randy Alcorn, who's, uh, um, I don't remember where, he, where he's a theologian at, but I think I've read one of his books on money, actually. I think he maybe he's written one on wealth and like how to use that. But anyways, um, he talks about souls, basically, that they go to a certain place uh, where they essentially they wait until the resurrection happens. And then and that could be even a, a, that spiritual aspect, too, you know. Um, but it, have any of you guys have read The Great Divorce? Have you guys ever read that book? It's a book by C.S. Lewis. And it's one of my favorites of all time. Like, I read it every year. And it's short, which makes it even better. So it's like 80, it's like 80 pages, maybe. Um, and it is a beautiful book. It is about the afterlife. It is not him, um, like, giving a doctrine of the afterlife. It's simply him taking imaginative, um, creative liberty to kind of create a world. Um, basically, his imagination. But it's just really fascinating, you know, the way that he describes it. So you should read that book this summer. Uh, it's very, very good. Um, really, I mean, it's a really quick read. So, uh, but yeah. Yeah. To reiterate what you said about uh, Jesus and his scars. Yes. Kind of com- confirmation about Thomas. Yeah. Putting his hand in Jesus' eye. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's that. Uh, he was saying that with the scars of Jesus, it's confirmation, for, especially for Thomas, right? The um, doubting, doubting Thomas who needed to see those and feel those um, to be able to believe this was, in fact, the risen Savior despite the fact that he looked a little different. So, yeah. Any other comments or questions you guys want to add?
Yeah, what's up, Roberta? Um, two preachers that had put in that class that tell me it's Christ in you, and the last one that we're studying is the new covenant, the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So, Roberto, if you guys can't hear her, she was saying basically that she's taking a class called uh, Covenant, what's it called? Covenant's Christ in You, and basically looks at different covenants, but the last one is ultimately the the covenant that Christ made with us. And uh, one of the things that she talks about is basically that, um, that she was saying was that our sins will be remembered no more. And so she said when it faces the judgment, it doesn't seem like we'll be judged, you know, for anything. Um, and I would, I would actually say this, is that we actually are judged, but we're judged based off of the record of Christ, not our own record. And so the sins that are forgotten are the very sins that Jesus, the reason they're forgotten is because Jesus um, became sin. You know, that's what Corinthians says. He became sin on our behalf. And ultimately, he, we get to have his record of righteousness so that when we're judged, uh, it's nothing by what we've done or accomplished, but it's everything that Christ has done and accomplished. And there's an exchange there. There's a substitution uh, that happens in the death of Christ that allows us to be seen with his righteousness. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or if that makes you have more, but... <laughs> well, I think that the judgment is also for, for those who are outside of Christ and therefore are being measured, are being um, basically analyzed through their covenant faithfulness through uh, basically whether they, they followed the law of God or not. And ultimately, everyone who's not in Christ are filthy rags. You know, Isaiah talks about that, you know, when he talks about this idea of, of coming with just these filthy rags. That is essentially this idea, is that when we approach God in the judgment, we are, we are clothed with one of two things. Our own clothing, which are filthy, dirty, nasty rags, or white, pure garment that is simply the, the garment of Christ that he has laid on us through his sacrifice. And so there is a judgment still that's going to take place for both us and, um, and um, those who are separate from God. But ultimately, that judgment for us is going to be um, not guilty, basically. Does that answer your question? More questions? Yeah. I think, though, um, and I can't quote it, but we will receive crowns of glory. Um, I know works does, do not save you, but yet uh, people will receive crowns. The martyrs, uh, the prophets uh, will have crowns for what role they play, maybe, in creation. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember where it says it, but it, it, does, it talks about it in Revelation about the, this idea that um, we will have crowns um, for, like the crowns of the martyrs is a great rep- uh, example of this, that basically your willingness to be martyred actually establishes a crown. And perhaps, you know, like I said, I think we're speculating a lot um, when we start to talk about things like this, but perhaps that is the case. Um, one of the things I've heard even about that is that God will give us things like that but actually only for us to lay them back down at his feet. 
And so perhaps that, that is the, the usefulness of those things. Another thing is, again, if you read The Great Divorce, he, he actually paints this picture, I think, really well, um, which is that there is a beauty of people that even have these distinct qualities about them in this new creation, um, and yet um, they don't diminish anyone else's. And so I think that I, the hesitancy that I have with saying that we get crowns for our works is you know, obvious, the obvious one, which is that we're not saved because of them, but also we begin to think that there's actually different values placed on different people. So I want to be careful of that. Um, but I do think that there's something to say that the way God gives us his blessings is ultimately always for everyone else around us. It's actually never for us. And so the, one of the ways we can continue to see eternity, even in light of these, these ideas, is ultimately that um, we should never be striving to be set apart um, from people uh, in terms of you know, our value, our significance, or the things that we achieve. But actually, we should be using the things that we achieve to actually exalt other people. And to, and to continue to embrace everyone to, you know, within, within that, use our blessings for the, for the best of people, which is part of what our offering's for. You know, it's like those things that can become so, we can um, idolize those things so easily that ultimately the more we can give them up, the more that our hearts become content simply in Christ. Um, so, yeah. Any other questions or comments or anything? Yeah. Uh, what do we do about what Jesus says about uh, none have been lost except the one doomed to destruction? Oh, man. What did he say? I'm trying to, he said, what do we do about the one that says none have been lost except for the one doomed to destruction? And I'm trying to think of where it says that. I'm trying to think, if, remember if it's talking about Judas or if it's talking about Satan. But I can't remember. I can't remember where it says it. Can you remind me? I think it's in Revelation, but I'm not sure. Gospel of John. It's the Gospel of John. 16 or 17. It's in the high priestly prayer. Okay. Um, the high priestly prayer. Yeah, I think he's talking about Judas because in that he's 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 thanking God as well for for his twelve disciples, and uh, and actually a lot of his prayer is for his disciples as he begins to get ready to leave them, uh, that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 14 starts that talk about the Holy Spirit. And then it kind of just leads that whole, I mean, the, all three of those chapters, four of those chapters really are God's prayer um, for, for, for the world, for, for the church, but also for the disciples. So I, I think that's right, but I could be wrong. I'd have to look more into it. That's a good question, though. Anything else? All right, we'll go on. Yeah. The chapters in like chronological order, you know, like with the kings. Did you ever do that in any of your worksheets? Not in the worksheets, no, not in the worksheets. But if you guys are curious, basically the way it would go is chapter five with Belshazzar would be paired um, with chapters nine and ten, eleven and twelve, whereas. Um, Darius in chapter 6 would be paired with 7 and 8. So, in case you guys are curious, those are the visions and when they happen. So, yeah, it's a good question. Anything else? All right. Then we'll go on. Um,
So, talking about this, uh, the, these distinctions between the wisdom and righteousness, uh, one of the things it says um, in verse 3, it says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. So this is, this is, I think, really powerful because it continues to remind us that we are those who are wise. First off, who is the prototypical wise person in the book of Daniel? Who is that? Daniel, right? Daniel is the one that, that has these answers to all of these kind of crazy visions. But that wisdom is specifically given to him by God. It's nothing that he had on his own. It's not something that he had that made him better than anybody else. It was simply something established in him by the power of God. And God was using Daniel for his purposes, for his glory. It was never supposed to be something that ultimately um, we could weigh Daniel and say, wow, Daniel is just so great and glorious. He's the Savior. You know? No, no, no. Daniel was always pointing to God. And when we begin to see the, the, this idea of ultimately um, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We, we are now being incorporated into this same idea. Like we kind of talked about this a little bit. But again, the Holy Spirit changes our lives completely. We are the wisdom now. We have this wisdom. We have this understanding. We are people that ultimately are embodying and manifesting the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That the, the characteristics of the Holy Spirit, right? Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And it is us that when we inherit eternal life, it says that we ourselves will shine. We will, we will be bright as stars. And it's not saying that we'll be amazing for our own sake. It's saying that ultimately we will be shine bright just like our God does, right? When, when Daniel sees this vision of Jesus, uh, when he sees the Ancient of Days in chapter 7, he sees a magnificent, awesome God. And we begin to look more and more like him through the power of the Holy Spirit. This brightness that begins to exude even from us, not because of anything we've done or anything that, that we could establish, but because simply of who God is and what he is doing in us to help us become like him, to help us look like him. But this is an important part to this. It says that part of the qualifiers of, of people who are, who are wise and will shine like this brightness, in addition to the fact that they themselves are wise and righteous, they are helping turn others to righteousness. They're helping others see this. That their light is being seen and it's drawing people in. How, now, now this is a, there's a part of the application here I don't want you guys to miss. Because if at any point you believe your mission is accomplished in helping everyone see the righteousness of God, you have completely missed the point. If all we talk about tonight is eternal life and how we get to experience it someday, we have completely missed the point. We talk about justice and we talk about eternal life and eternal damnation. That shouldn't make us feel better because we're going to have eternal life. That should make us be on mission because there are people who are destined for eternal damnation. And if, if our only belief in this is simply to, be, uh, to feel better about the fact that we know where we're going, then we need to reevaluate. We need to recalibrate, myself included. Because we do. We just get caught up in our own lives. We get caught up in our own schedules, our own busyness. And we forget about the fact that there is hope for us. But that means that there's not hope for somebody else. But there can be. And how is God allowing us to be a part of those areas? I mean, we have to continue to recalibrate that. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter uh, how, how much you are in different social areas. If you're not, do it. I mean, I know uh, one of the things, my dad is bald, 
Okay, my dad is bald. But he still goes and gets his hair shaved by somebody and his beard trimmed up simply so he can have a conversation with somebody outside of the church. That, that is what God is calling us to do. If we aren't in the places where unbelievers are, we need to figure out ways to get, us, get ourselves there. Okay? So continue to work at that. Uh, work at being a, a, someone who's ultimately pointing people towards righteousness. Because it's not that we say, are saying, I know how you can establish righteousness. We're saying, I know who does. And I'm telling you, I wasn't good enough either, but somebody's covered me, and he can cover you too. And the more that we can point people to that, the more we can be on mission until this day comes. Um, So, going on, uh, verse 4, he says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Does anybody have anything different than that? That many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase? Anybody have anything different than that? The way it reads? No? Well, this idea is, I know some translations have a little bit, they say it's a little bit differently, but most people that have, a lot of the research that I've done has basically said this is taken from Amos 8, and it's this idea when the Word of God is no longer available. It's the idea that people are going to run to and fro to figure out where this Word of God is, where the truth is, but they're not going to find it. Um, Because ultimately it's being shut up, it's being sealed. And it's not being kept secret necessarily, it's just being preserved. It's being kept intact. And the problem is that the people who are running around for it are the ones who are looking in the wrong place. And we believe, first and foremost, that Scripture is one of the most, the, the, the primary place where the revelation of God takes place. Uh, that ultimately it becomes an authority for us. It becomes a guiding rule. Canon, uh, the word canon, if you've ever heard that, that word before, uh, literally means essentially like straight, straight uh, line. Or, um, you know, this idea that ultimately this is what guides us in our in our path to, to walk on a straight path, you know, uh, it, it continues to guide us. And so when we talk about the canon, we talk about the, the books of the Bible being canonized, which reminds me, I never explained the text I gave you guys. So if you guys got those handouts that were at the door, uh, that is chapter 13 and 14 of Daniel. Our Bibles only go to chapter 12. Now, chapter 13 and 14, these really, they're just, um, we don't consider them authoritative. We don't consider them part of, the, of our canon of Scripture. Um, but they're really interesting. So, especially the chapter 13. I was talking to Robert about this before class. It's a really weird story. Uh, you can tell when you read it that like this was clearly written later and, and put in later. But it's just an interesting, it's a historical document. And um, the, at the end of the day, what this is telling us is not um, God working through this text necessarily. But it is telling us what people believed about Daniel. Daniel was a legend. And people were writing these different stories about him. And ultimately, they're not a part of our Bible because we don't b- believe that they were a part of the earliest manuscripts. Uh, Jews themselves don't consider those two chapters a part of their Old Testament canon. Um, but it's just interesting to read, to see, like, this is how people in 2nd century B.C. area viewed the person of Daniel. And they, they really did believe that he was a powerful figure of, of faith. Um, and so... It's, it's, just, it's, it's interesting. So that's there for you to just read at some point. Um, but anyways, going on. This document that is, Daniel's being asked to seal is ultimately, he's being asked to protect it. 
And again, it's this idea that the people are going to, one day the Word of God is not going to be as available as it is right now, and people will not always have this revelation available. And so, and more than that, is that when it is revealed for the time of the end, that we will be able to pick it up and know what it is, what it says, uh, what it means. So, verse 5, let's go ahead and move on, because time just flies by every single week. I'm just not even going to say, oh, wow, it's this time anymore, because we know that I just talk forever. So, verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. So again, if you guys remember in chapter 10, we're back at this, in this scene, at the beginning of the vision, when they are at the Tigris, and this, the angels come, and he sees this, at first he hears a voice hovering above the waters, um, and now what he's going to tell us is that this is the same awesome manifestation that he saw before. And it is again hovering between the waters. There are two angels. They're both on the sides, on the banks of, of the Tigris itself. But it is this one in the middle hovering above. That is a reminder to us. Back to Genesis. There are allusions to Genesis all over um, the book of Daniel. But this is one of them. So if you guys remember the, the Holy the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. It's this idea. that It's this, this sovereignty idea. This creativity. This powerful, uh, majestic figure. And uh, in fact, actually, if you look back in verse 2 as well, it says, Many, the, the, those who sleep in the dust of the earth, the dust of the earth, right? That was what God made us out of to begin with. And so it's this idea that even from the dust, he'll, he'll rise us up again from that dust. We'll be, we'll be uh, risen again. So again, an allusion to Genesis. But he says in verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in, li- in linen, who was above the waters of the streams, so this is an angel talking to this, this figure, How long shall it be? Till the end of these wonders. And again, this is asking not when is it over, but how long will it last? And it says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his, hand, his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. This is a pretty common thing people did when they were making oaths, although it was usually one hand, not two. So the fact that he's using two, he's making a statement that is, she's trying to emphasize. It's just an emphatic decree. And this is what he says. Um, He looked toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. I'm going to rush through this a little bit because I want to leave time for more questions if we have them, just about the book as a whole and maybe just um, pull out some themes from the book in general. So a couple of things. Um, Daniel begins to ask this question to, um, well, first the angel asks, like, how long is this going to last? And, and he's given a same category that is given in chapter 7, verse 25. Time, times, and half a time. Now, again, we don't know what this actually means. It could very well mean that it's three and a half years. That's what some believe it means. It could just mean mean a symbolic way to suggest an amount of time. We're not really sure. 
but this is the answer that is given. And so it's kind of an ambiguous one, and um, we can kind of speculate as to what it means, but we're not exactly sure. Uh, but he gives another qualifier. is that not only will this time come to pass, but the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. Um, that when that is done, then the time will have elapsed ultimately to bring the end. And what does Daniel say in verse 8? I heard, but I did not understand. This is important because neither do we. <laughs> we don't understand all of what's happening. And we're doing our best to look back and understand how history has incorporated this. Uh, but it, it's really, Daniel's really less concerned with how much we understand about the timing of when things will happen. And more that we're concerned that the fact that it will happen and what will happen. God will bring an end to those who stand against him and resurrection will take place. Uh, he goes on when he says, um, I heard I didn't understand. Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he simply said, go your way, Daniel. Don't worry about this. Don't, you don't need to worry about the details of this. And part of the reason why is what he says in verse 13. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. This is so far after Daniel. This is after Daniel's time. Even whether we're talking about just verse 36 to the end of chapter 11, or everything that comes before it with the kings of, of the Greek empire fighting, regardless, this is so far after Daniel that the point of what God is saying to Daniel is, you will have rest, and when this happens, you will rise too. Despite everything you've been through your entire life, despite being taken into Babylonian captivity and being transferred into the Medo-Persian Empire, despite anticipating the Greek Empire that awaits, you will rise again. This is the most important part. Hope. Hope for Daniel himself. And so he just kind of says, go your own way. Um, And it says that there are two people, um, and ultimately it establishes, again, the wicked versus the righteous. The righteous will understand, and the wicked won't. And what seems to be implied is that the understanding is not simply about when the end comes, but also identifying this idea that there's an understanding that it's all in God's hands. There's not an understanding of the details, because Daniel didn't understand, right? And Daniel is the wise. Daniel is the righteous. Daniel is a person that is would ultimately fit the category that's being talked about here of understanding. And yet he didn't understand the vision. So does that mean he's not a part of it? Well, no. The, the idea is that there are those who are found in Christ who are simply resting in the hope that he offers. That they are not worried about the details because they know who holds the details. They're not worried about the timing because they know who holds time. They're not worried about whatever king or antichrist establishes themselves as a power against God because they know that God is the one that gave them the power to begin with. That is what the whole book of Daniel has been about. And when the, the day finally comes, when God, when God, even in Daniel's time, brings Israel back to the promised land, and there will be a time again when God brings us all to the promised land. And that is the understanding. That no matter what the world looks like, we have the right perception. No matter what the world looks like, we trust in God's timing. And uh, one of the things it even says is, in, in verse 10, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. This idea of refinement. This idea that ultimately uh, part of what the wicked will not understand is that we can actually stand in suffering. We can actually lean into it because that's where God meets us because that's how God refines us because devastation doesn't destroy the people of God it simply just changes us 
When suffering happens, we aren't demolished. We aren't crushed. We are simply transformed into something beautiful. And this is the understanding that no one else, is, it's impossible for them to have. And so when we are in the midst of suffering, we not only see that how it's changing us to become like God, but we're also anticipating the day when he completely wipes it out and makes us completely like him. It makes us completely holy uh, internally from the inside out. Um, so kind of as this ends, um, I want to do a couple, couple things before we end. So I'm going to end it here. But um, the, the days that it's talking about, just a quick, quick recap on those. Um, the 1,290 days, those do not line up to three and a half years. There's a lot of different ways people try to do the math, but it just doesn't work. Um, they're, they're, even at 30-day months, um, which is according to the lunar calendar that they would have been using, it w- it's still too short. There's 30 extra days. And so whether, again, it, maybe it's literal but, um, or figurative, I just don't want to get into the weeds of it because ultimately at the end of the day, we don't know and nobody knows what exactly this time period is pointing to. What Daniel says is, when it's happening, you will know. When it's happening, you'll be able to look back and say, oh, okay. We are not supposed to look into the future and try to determine it. That is not what Daniel wants us to do. Um, Daniel is being told everything about the future, and he still doesn't get it, and neither should we. And so when this time comes, we'll be, we'll be sure of it. Um, and so that's kind of, but I want to answer questions about that too, if you guys have them, but questions on the book as a whole. And then what I want to do is just talk about some of the major themes that we see throughout the book of Daniel. So questions on the book of Daniel as a whole, even this chapter. Yeah. One thing, 13 sounds like soul sleep to me. In verse 13. Oh yeah. Cause it says that you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Yeah. It's possible, you know. I don't think that it gives us enough information to be able to make that, you know, necessarily that implication, but uh, or that inference, I should say. But it's it could be, you know, it could be. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter, you know. Both of the ideas basically say, as soon as you die, you're with God, you know. And uh, so, regardless, it's going to be a good thing, you know. But yeah, anything else? Yeah. Do you think that, and this is creative, but do you think all the questions that we have, we will know just like the way we'll be changed in a twinkling of the eye, everything will be revealed to us? We'll understand um, all of history and all, how we come. I mean, will we converse with each other, do you think? We'll know each other, they say. Um, you're not going to stand there and sing the whole time. You know, I heard a sermon about that. We're going we're gonna to be busy, um, maybe doing all kinds of stuff, taking care of the garden now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and again, I think you're, uh, you know, to your point, what you said, this is creative. Like this is this is speculation to some degree, but I think that it's, I think it's good. You know, I think it's, I think the more that we do think about eternity, the more that we will, um, the more hope that it can instill, and the more that it will actually change how we view people and how we try to get people to come into it, and so um, through Jesus. And so I think it's a good thing. But um, my own speculation of it is that. And and I'll say this is not speculation. What's not speculation is that ultimately what heaven is, is earth recreated. That is not speculation. Uh, John paints that picture very clearly. And so I believe you're right. I think that uh, we will walk in creation with physical things around us and enjoy the things that we actually had abandoned from the old garden. 
we're going to get a new one. It's going to be even better. Uh, so that's, that's one part of it that I think that is not speculation. In terms of what we're going to do there, this is more speculation. Um, I think that we will know each other. I think that we will speak to each other. Um, I think that um, we will, in terms of understanding, I don't know. Uh, but my speculation is that um, just like the men on the, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus explained the scriptures to them and they completely, they understood who the Messiah was always pointing to be, I think that it, it would not be surprised, it, it would not surprise me if, if, uh, if that were the case as well in heaven where we have an experience with God where we're finally able to look back and say, oh, okay, I understand the picture now. I sure hope so anyways. I mean, certainly if we are in this, this communion with God, this unity with God, um, that we are going to, um, we're not going to be, you know, our knowledge certainly will be infinite, I don't think, because we're not going to be, um, we're not going to take on the nature of God and become God ourselves, but I think that we certainly will be able to have access to a father figure. You know, the reason God gives us names like father and king and, and lord and shepherd are not because that is all that God is. Those are simply words that God has given us so that we can understand a little part of him, somebody who is transcendent. He, he transcends those categories, uh, but he gives us those so that in our earthly terms we can understand. And I think that it's important to see that when Jesus prays, he, got, he calls God Father. I think it's important to see that in Romans 8 when, when Paul is talking about how the Holy Spirit changes our relationship with God, it is one in a father-child relationship. And I think that we will be able to have the access to God to ask him so many things. Now, he may not be able to tell us, and here, here's the other thing is, he might be able to tell us things, but that we don't even have the capacity to understand. And, you know, like what Kenny was talking about, we only know time, you know, and it's hard to believe that we will ever have a physical capacity to think in some categories, especially in a timeless one. And so he may say something to us, and we just be like, uh, okay, I'll just trust you there, you know? Uh, but there are certainly, I hope, things that he can explain, like even creation. I'm like, tell me more, you know. Um, but that's, that's my speculation on it, is that it will be just as it is now. It will just be infinitely better. So we'll definitely be walking with him again. I remember Mark uh, Moore when he was here yeah. saying there's so many things that I didn't get to do here because I was busy doing this. Mm. that I can't wait till I get to heaven so I can do all the things that I yeah. didn't get to do here. Yeah. Uh, like, if you anticipate that, that's like um, uh, heaven on earth. We're thinking yeah. um, it'll go on and on. Yeah, like, for sure. Will you go bowling or will you have a birthday party or, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. Like that, just Maybe you will have a birthday party, but it'll be like your baptism or something, you know. <laughs> or everyone will have the same birthday because we're all resurrected on the same day, you know. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's very possible. And um, the other thing is with, with God, God is a creative being. You know, I, I think that God likes to create. God likes to initiate. And I think he's created us to be creative. You know, I think he's, that he's given us the powers of reason and innovation and I think that we will still continue to do that. I mean, think of it in a practical way. Um, if, if there, I don't, you know, well, we're, now we're starting to get into, this is really speculation, so. <laughs> but, you know, we're having fun, so why not? Um, let's say that 
the categories of marriage are redefined. Like, so, you know, Jesus, when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, he says, well, people won't be given in marriage. But what that means is that we won't be having the same, I think anyways, that we won't have these same covenant-type relationships, earthly relationships that we do now. Um, maybe that looks different. Then. Maybe procreation still happens if procreation is still a blessing. And how that happens, I don't know. I don't know. We probably shouldn't speculate too much on it. But the idea is if we're still enjoying the blessings of God and the thing, the, you know, these good things that he's given us, um, how, how does that take place? But even more than that, you know, the universe is a giant thing. And so perhaps in eternity, you know, as we continue to create and innovate, I don't think we'll ever stop, you know, using our, our creative powers to continue to expand. Maybe we continue to expand across the universe, you know. I don't know. See how weird it gets when you just start thinking about the practical implications of it all? But, um, yeah, so it's good stuff, though. What time is it? All right, 7.55. Um, well, we didn't have time to talk about the themes, but some themes in, in Daniel real quick. The kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. There's a godly one and there's, a, there's an earthly one. You get to decide which one you're investing in and being a part of. But more than that, who you're inviting people to be a part of. The other thing is suffering. What do you do in suffering? Do you run to God or do you run from Him? Are you changed through it or are you crushed by it? Those things are what characterize a Christian. Those are the differences. Um, when it starts talking about worship, who are you worshiping? Is it God? Is He the one that you're after? Uh, are you resting in the fact that He is in control, that His sovereign will is being played out? It's been written down, and it will take place, and it is good. Um, these, are, these are the types of themes that run throughout the book of Daniel. Wisdom, um, and, and ultimately allowing God to be the, what gives you knowledge and truth instead of all the other things that bombard us. So... Let me pray for us, and then, uh, guys, it's been a great semester um, going through this with you. I hope it's been a blessing for you, and it's been, it's been fun for me and a blessing for me. So let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us become more and more like you through these types of things, that um, reflecting on eternity would not just make us um, joyful ourselves because we, we look so forward to it, but also that it would make us um, on mission, that it would help us come to help people see your kingdom and what it is you're offering and, and simply preach the gospel. Uh, Father, that they would, the, the only way to come to know you, Father, is not out of a fear of what awaits, but simply out of a joy of knowing you. And we pray that, God, we could embody that to some extent. Uh, that as your Holy Spirit dwells in us, that when they encounter us, they encounter you. And that they would see Jesus uh, as the person who will justify them, who will cover them by his blood, by his great sacrifice. And Father, we're so thankful for that. As we come off the heels of, of um, celebrating your death and resurrection, Lord, we just we pray that your spirit would continue to move. As we go through these days, a reminder of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would radically change your church and the world forever. Father, we love you, and we're thankful, God, that you never leave us. And we pray, God, that you would continue to remind us of that every day. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.